Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Residential and commercial buildings account for nearly a third of climate warming greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Any effort to achieve climate targets, such as the Biden administration's net zero goal for 2050, must include widespread cuts in emissions from buildings. Yet efforts to reduce building greenhouse gases have become political lightning rods. Local regulations that would require new homes to be fully electrified have often encountered fierce pushback, while at least 20 state legislatures have passed laws making it illegal for cities to ban natural gas connections in new homes. Politics aside, business and homeowners may have little awareness of their building's climate footprint and often lack the time and motivation to explore alternatives like electric space and water heating. On today's podcast, we're going to look at some of the political, economic, and consumer awareness hurdles to cutting the climate impact of buildings. My guest is Judy Chang, who served as Massachusetts Undersecretary of Energy and Climate Solutions until January of this year. In her role, Judy was a leader in developing and implementing the state's energy policies and climate targets. She'll discuss the need to educate consumers on the imperative to cut building emissions and financing frameworks to do so. Judy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So it has been nearly three years since you were last on the podcast, and you have been very busy in the interim. Most recently, you were the Massachusetts Undersecretary of Energy and Climate Solutions. To get us started, I wonder if you could get us an overview of the responsibilities in that role, and maybe in particular as they relate to state energy and climate goals, and in the context of today's conversation, building electrification. Yes, as the Undersecretary of Energy and Climate Solutions, I sit under a secretariat that that oversees energy and environment and, of course, climate. Part of my responsibility is help advise the governor and the state government about the energy policies for the state, as well as develop the climate plan for the state. Uh, In Massachusetts, we call that plan a Clean Energy and Climate Plan, and set in statute, the state had to set uh, a plan for near-term and long-term. The near-term, we in 2022, last year, we set a near-term target uh, for 2020 year 2025 and 2030. Overall, the state must meet 50% greenhouse gas emissions reduction in 2030 and 85% greenhouse gas emissions reduction in 2050, all relative to the 1990 level. And as part of the legal requirement, the state also must set the emissions target by sector. So it's not just in general as the economy, what we, how we meet 50% in 2030 and 85% in 2050, but sector by sector, how are we going to do that? What are the policies? What are the programs? and exactly what the greenhouse gas emissions levels we are targeting for each of the five years intervals going into the future. In addition, the state has a legal requirement to meet net zero economy-wide in 2050. So all of that requires, in my mind, long-term planning to make sure that we can achieve these legal requirements and targets for each sector 
So I led a team from the energy and on the environment side and on the climate side to set out the policies and the programs for the state. So you were with the outgoing administration of Governor Charlie Baker. Massachusetts has a new governor now, Mara Healey. Do you expect her to to fall on pretty much the same trajectory that you were following and the governor was following up until the beginning of this year? I do expect that the new governor and her administration to follow the same trajectory and perhaps pushing harder on some of the policies that are underway. So I wonder if you could frame for us the need for building electrification within the larger context of decarbonization. As you mentioned in the introduction, residential and commercial buildings emit about 30% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And out of that emissions from residential commercial buildings, about 40% of the energy use in buildings are associated with heating. In addition, you know, thinking about 2050, where we need to meet net zero for some of the states and in Massachusetts, that's a legal requirement. But we also know that 80 to 85% of the buildings standing in 2050, that will be standing in 2050, are already built, which means that our jobs require us to reduce emissions, not only in building new buildings, which I will talk about, but also reduce emissions from existing buildings. Uh, We essentially can't get there by only working on new buildings, but the effect of energy efficiency programs and transition to clean energy on existing buildings is an essential part of the decarbonization of our building sector. So in new buildings, I'll just start. The most important thing, of course, is to make sure that every single new building built from this day forward, should be as efficient as possible. And that means that we need to tighten the envelope of every building so that it's really, uh, especially in a cold climate like in New England, we want to make sure that the heating consumption or the energy consumption associated with heating and cooling in the summer are the lowest as possible. And once we do that, then we can talk about what type of heating and cooling systems are the most efficient systems for those buildings. And in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, once you shrink the energy consumption or the energy footprint of a new building, then it's actually cost-effective or even lower cost to just electrify the building. That means the heating system of new buildings can be cost-effective using heat pumps. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I want to get more into the details of the costs and the complexities involved in both new builds as well as retrofits of old builds to electric appliances, electric heating in just a moment. But I want to make note of something on the political side here for a moment. So building electrification has become a lightning rod political issue in this country. And on one side, you have a growing number of cities around the country that have mandated new buildings use electric space and water heating, or on the flip side, you know, ban natural gas hookups and new construction. In 2019, Berkeley, California was the first city to ban natural gas in new construction. And now we have similar rules in place in places like Denver, New York, and a growing number of of, of cities. Also, a couple of months ago, Montgomery County, Maryland, which I believe is outside of D.C., became the first county to ban gas heating and new construction, and that goes into effect in 2026. So there's a lot of momentum for building electrification. But 
you have the backlash, right? So as we mentioned earlier, 20 states have outlawed natural gas bans. And we're familiar with the divide here, right? Generally, the bans on natural gas construction are in coastal states, liberal coastal states, of which Massachusetts is a prime example. But even in Massachusetts, as you saw when you were in the government there, the politics of natural gas bans can get tricky. Massachusetts has settled on a couple of political compromises on this issue. I wonder if you could talk about the complexities, the political issues here, and and these compromise solutions that the state has come up with. This is a very tricky area, particularly for New England, because we're in a, a cold climate and there are debates about whether requiring new buildings to all go electric is a wise thing to do at this moment in time. And natural gas for heating is a dominant, not all, but uh, about 40 to 50% of heating in buildings in Massachusetts are using natural gas. So banning new natural gas hookups is and has been a controversial question. On one hand, we want to drive toward decarbonization, and that requires not only changing the fuel, but actually first and foremost to make sure that existing buildings and new buildings are as efficient as possible, as I just mentioned. And I also mentioned earlier, once you have new buildings designed and built to its maximum efficiency and shrinking the energy consumption need, then electrifying that building is actually less cost or a comparable cost as hooking up natural gas. Of course, there are exceptions. So not every building is exactly the same depending on the use and the location. So from a factual basis, the cost is approximately similar for new buildings that can really consume as little energy as possible. But banning natural gas in new buildings brings up other concerns. For example, in some ways you can think of uh, leakage issues with any carbon price, right? So as comparable to if you have a specific region that has a carbon price, but no carbon price outside of that region, you have this leakage issue where perhaps manufacturing would move to a nearby location instead of in that region that has carbon price. Similarly for housing, particularly with a ban on natural gas, what that might mean is that you're not actually helping in the total emissions reduction. Instead, you're just moving the problem elsewhere or you're moving the buildings or new buildings elsewhere. So there is a risk of communities that ban certain resource that consumers still want, in this case, natural gas, to actually move those development elsewhere or in our current situation in Massachusetts and really across the country, we have a shortage of housing, affordable housing. And the danger of banning a certain type of fuel use for consumers is the risk of reducing the amount of housing that's made available for people. So any kind of policies that are either statewide or region-wide or country-wide, this is a type of policy that we need to carefully design and carefully evaluate what the potential impact would be by banning certain 
fuel that consumers are still demanding. The 10-town pilot in Massachusetts does provide certain municipalities to adjust their own ordinances to require no new natural gas hookups. Now, these types of policies can be effective for new buildings, but as I mentioned earlier, that's, you know, that's, that's not the only policy that we need. There are also trade-offs, as I just mentioned. There are reasons why builders and building owners want natural gas. So until we can make sure that the demand for natural gas shrinks, we may end up shifting the buildings out of those communities or simply reduce the housing that's needed for certain communities. So there's a delicate balance here. We can't just think about one side of the equation and hope for the best for the other side and leave the or leave the other side of the equation to be solved by somebody else. That's why the sort of ban or banning the gas or not uh, or banning the policies to ban gas are really tricky policy questions that we need to really make sure that we understand the potential impact before setting those policies. I'm curious about Massachusetts and again, this 10 town ban. So the state said 10 municipalities, 10 cities can ban fossil fuel hookups, or, you know, gas hookups in new construction. Why the 10 community ban? I believe Boston wanted to get in on this, but they were too late. 10 municipalities were already chosen. Well, it's it's exactly what I just mentioned, mm-hmm. along with the allowance or the ability for 10 towns to be or as an initial pilot is a requirement on the Department of Energy Resources, which is the energy policy arm of the state to evaluate the potential impact of such bans on those communities and compare them with cities and towns that don't have such bans. So it just it's trying to to make sure that we evaluate the potential impact before making it a broader policy for the state. And you also have this voluntary pre-wired building code as well, right? Yes. Separately, there is a new building code that's effective starting this year for various different commercial and residential buildings. And as part of the new building code, there is a municipal opt-in stretch energy code that's uh, promulgated And that allows and that provides municipalities, cities and towns an ability to follow a more stringent energy code. And under that opt-in stretch energy code is a requirement. So if you follow that, then you should pre-wire all buildings for potential future electrification, even if they're not electrified today. It's interesting. A few minutes ago, we were talking about the costs of electrified new builds, right? Housing and and, and commercial properties. And as you pointed out, the costs are comparable when those buildings are fully electrified versus, you know, using gas heating, gas water heating, that type of thing, gas fueled. But it really gets complicated when we start looking at retrofits. And you alluded to that as well. And this comes to the issue of who's going to pay for this. Obviously, retrofitting a house is extremely expensive. Massachusetts has a 100% electrification rebate for low-income households. I'm sure that exists in other states as well. But I wonder if you could talk about this challenge of the retrofits and how you make sure that all consumers are brought along on this, not just people who could actually you know, afford to go this alone. Yeah, that's a really good question. And in my mind, again, you know, setting the policies or setting the directions for new builds is only part of the equation. We can't reach the decarbonization goals without 
actually addressing the existing building stock. And looking around New England, there are a lot of buildings that are very old and you essentially heat the building and the heat just goes out the window or got out the walls or the roofs. So there's a lot of retrofit work that's necessary. And as you also mentioned, this is a very expensive undertaking and we have to do it by making sure that those that are most vulnerable, the low-income households, have the assistance to choose to make these changes going forward. So currently, there's a significant amount of money in the uh, Mass Save program, which is the state energy efficiency program, but it's really energy efficiency and energy transition. And that's using money from electric and gas ratepayers to fund the energy efficiency measures to tighten all existing buildings envelopes and to help people transition from fossil-based heating systems to electric heat pumps. And this is $4 billion over three years, which is a lot of money, but it's not enough. I mean, this is only the tip of the iceberg. The amount of retrofits that's necessary is significant. So I do think that while the ratepayers funding is made of it has been made available in Massachusetts and with the additional funding through the Federal Inflation Reduction Act, this will kickstart this effort, but the overarching cost issue will have to, you know, will still have, still have to be addressed. Now low low and moderate income households need to be at the forefront of this transition. And the reason is we don't want to leave the low and moderate income households behind when, as people move away from, for example, natural gas systems, the cost of the natural gas system per unit of usage will increase over time as well. So what we don't want to do is leave the low income folks behind And them being the ones holding the bag or paying for the eventually high cost of delivered natural gas. So this is this gets pretty complicated, but I think it's really important for government to step in and help reduce the energy burden for the low and moderate income and historically underserved population. Massachusetts has already witnessed that additional efforts are necessary to help low and moderate income residents to engage with energy efficiency measures. Just imagine if you're busy caring for your children and holding down a job, it's actually very challenging. I mean, even for people who are in the business of energy, it's still challenging to find the time to call people and schedule an energy audit and then call three to five vendors to come and give you a quote and get the work done. So this is hard enough, even if it's free. So... I think the state and the utilities, which are the program administrator, have a responsibility to make it easy and easier for low and moderate income people to engage. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done here. What role might green banks play in private finance of the energy transition generally? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, It has become one of my uh, passions to explore this area of green bank. Of course, there are many types of green banks, and it's more or less a generic term. But in my mind, where 
uh, quote-unquote Green Bank can really play a role here is to funnel public money. For example, there are there's uh, $27 billion dedicated this in, uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act to set up green banks across the country or a national green bank to facilitate and attract private capital into really decarbonization or greenhouse gas reduction. But I think the building sector and the decarbonization buildings is ripe for this, where, you know, we have seen this in already in in solar and wind. But I think for the building sector, the public money can be public, including ratepayers money, can be used to de-risk, to reduce the risk for private investments so that the, when the private sector comes in, especially these days when there are private investors looking for climate-friendly investments that can help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, I think the public money can help funnel or help attract and de-risk some of the investments. What that means is the private investor will still seek some return, but that return can come in the form of, of course, the financial return, but in addition to financial return, a climate-friendly return, and then the public money can receive a lower return so that it absorbs more of the risk. So this is still in a, at the conceptual level, but I think I will be spending more efforts in this area to structure a public-private partnership or many public-private partnerships in the space of decarbonization of buildings. Are there any examples of projects out there where private funding is used, any structures to make this happen? I wonder if you could tell us about that. There is money out there from financiers, private financiers. But as always, private investors need to evaluate the risks and the return to make informed investment decisions. So while I can't cite a particular example, I mean, there are many examples for commercial buildings or perhaps municipal buildings, but there isn't yet a clear example where residential households can be financed easily with private investors. So there are currently public and private joint efforts out there that we need to learn from. Investors who are making, who are looking to make climate-friendly investments that are not just wind and solar and storage, which we hear a lot about, and those are very important, but we need to figure out ways to make it attractive for private capital to enter into this building electrification space. This means that public sector, both federal and state, and ratepayer incentives can help reduce the risk and should help reduce the risks for some decarbonization investments, and then work with the private investors to test out different investment models. There are tax credits, as I mentioned earlier, through the Inflation Reduction Act, and developers and their financiers will likely make some investments that pencil out with the increased tax credit. But to scale this up, especially in the residential space, and truly decarbonize on a larger scale, we need a lot more participation from the private sector. And this this area, I, I believe, is quite rich with a lot more understanding and and research, really, and to really try to create public and private partnerships that can work in the decarbonization of building space. So all retrofits, as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, will depend on consumer involvement, right? Homeowners, business owners will need to make the decision whether they're good incentives or not 
to retrofit their buildings for electric heating, electric water heating, et cetera. And you have talked in the past about the importance of education, that consumers need to understand not only the solutions that are out there, the cost of those solutions, but they need to more generally also understand the role of their own homes and their businesses in the process of decarbonization. And there's also a lot of misinformation out there as well. There was recently a story that appeared in Grist that mentions that contractors talk to consumers and may actually try to talk consumers out of installing electric heat pumps because they say they they really don't work that well. But want to hear your thoughts on this, you know, the importance of education, of fighting misinformation in this area. My assessment of the situation is that technology is moving pretty quickly. So heat pumps that are installed even four or five years ago are not the same as the heat pumps that are coming on to the market today. So there is some misinformation or it's not really misinformation, it's more dated information that give the consumer an impression that heat pumps don't work for whatever reason. But it turns out heat pumps work differently. So people who have experience in this will say that, well, it's hard for you to like just crank it up. You know, you, you're used to cranking up the heat by turning up the thermostat. Well, heat pumps take longer time. So it's more of a sustained temperature, gradual temperature changes. So there are just areas where people are not used to or people who use radiant heat that might not be used to heat pumps that actually blow air, for example. So there are just areas where people are not used to a new technology. So there's that that piece of it. The other thing is, it's absolutely true that our HVAC experts that come to our homes or businesses may not yet be up to date on the technologies available today. And that is a big barrier for adoption. Because what we want people to do is to plan ahead and not wait for that moment where you're, you know, in the dead of winter and your gas boiler breaks down and you're calling that number that's on your boiler and say, okay, now what do I do? Because in those moments, you can only replace, you will most likely replace what you already have with the same type of boiler, in this case, a gas or oil boiler. What we need people to do, which is a big ask, if you think about you know how busy everybody is with their lives, we need people to actually plan ahead and be informed to make the transition before that equipment breaks down. And if we miss those opportunities, those opportunities don't come up very often. <laughs> so we, we want to make sure we capture those opportunities before the breakdown. We want to make sure that pe- every time people transition to another new fossil-based boiler, that's another opportunity missed. So it is extremely important that we get the information out to not only the consumers, but also the HVAC experts that are working with customers every day. We need to work with union leaders and schools, connect them up with vendors, manufacturers, and make sure that those HVAC experts that come to people's home have the most up-to-date information and they can share the, the experience of the customers that have already changed over. Another thing that's really important for consumer engagement is that I've observed in the solar industry, 
people trust their neighbors probably more than governments or or even utilities. So this joint or neighborhood-based or regional joint purchasing programs can also work for heat pumps because you know when you have a neighbor switch over to a heat pump, you're likely to find out more about that and choose to find out more about the transition for yourself. So this kind of program, these kind of programs are probably a good way to help consumers to change over. You hit on such an important and I think underappreciated point here. And that is how many opportunities do we have to replace boilers in a home? Or how many opportunities do we have on the transportation front to replace somebody's car with an EV, right? So a boiler lasts, let's say, 15 years. You keep your car for 10 years. That's one or two opportunities to turn over this infrastructure by the middle of the century. And we think about this as a very, oh, you got 27 years to go, but there's actually only a couple of key decision points. I think that's really important to take into, into consideration here. Yes, absolutely. That's why, you know, it seems so strange that even just a few years ago, we thought, well, 2050 is so far out in the future. But then once you start looking at the stock turnover, this, this concept that you're just talking about, we start thinking about stock turnover, you're right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a new car today, but once I have that car, I'll have it for 10 years at least, right? So I really don't need another car for a decade. <laughs> and same thing with boilers. So we can't miss those opportunities because once we put in a new oil-based boiler, that boiler is going to last 15 years. <laughs> and it's even more expensive to retrofit something when it's not at the turnover rate, right? When it's not at the end of its life. So we don't want to increase the cost for consumers by trying to change over their equipment before the end of life. We want to capture these moments at the end of the equipment life for the transition. An interesting point here, and I think something just takes, you know, is worth mentioning for a moment, although it's going to seem pretty obvious, is obviously electrification only makes sense, only works in the climate sense, assuming that that electricity is clean, right? That that electricity is cleanly generated. Yes. And this brings up the issue of New England, where you live and where you've worked, uh, the, the, the energy mix there. A lot of natural gas in New England. And I believe in New England, or maybe it's Massachusetts, specifically, natural gas consumption is still on the rise, generally. So you've got this situation here where you're trying to switch over everybody's homes and businesses to use electricity, when at the same time, you're still seeing a rise in natural gas, which is used obviously directly for heating as well as for electricity generation. Can you talk about the challenge of using and maintaining the gas infrastructure at the same time you're trying to move away from it? Yes, that is one of the uh, major challenges of this transition to clean economy, right? You're, you're absolutely right. So I'll, I'll try to paint a simple picture, but it's actually quite complex. We want to make sure that people start adopting electrification, both of buildings, heat and transportation. At the same time, to support that, we need to make sure that consumers have positive experience with that. So we don't want blackouts. 
We, we, which means what? We need electric distribution system to make sure that they're upgraded enough so that when we add on all this electricity from for transportation and for heating, the distribution system is available. In addition, we need generation. So we need clean generation to support the electrification so that we're actually not increasing the greenhouse gas emissions from the electric sector in, at the power plants. So we need to simultaneously integrate clean energy onto the electric grid. And that, for New England at least, that means wind and solar and storage and that, uh, and uh, large hydro. And if we don't have hydro in the U.S., we need to import hydro from our neighboring country, Canada. And that's similar in other parts of the country, right? So we need to build the necessary clean energy, whether it's maintaining existing nuclear or imports from Canada or increasing the capacity of our hydro systems, in addition to building up the wind, solar, and storage across the country. So this is a huge undertaking to make sure that we have the clean electricity on the grid. And then also, that's just building the generation. And I'm sure you've uh, talked about this on your other podcast too, the transmission system and the network uh, of bringing large high voltage lines from remote areas where the hydro and solar and wind are are at to the areas where electricity is needed is also a big investment that this country is trying to develop and to make sure that we have sufficient amount of transmission investments. And just to add to the complexity of this, it turns out transmission systems cross many states often, even if it's like a wind in North Dakota bringing to Minnesota or other parts of the Midwest, those transmission projects cross many states and the permitting process and the cost allocation process is actually a barrier for deploying that type of uh, investments, uh, transmission investments. And then back to your question about, well, what about the pipelines? So while we're making the transition from fossil-based, both power generation and heating, while we're making the transition, we still need the natural gas to be available. And and we see this both at the national level and at the debate uh, of the national level policies, as well as the local level. So in Massachusetts, for example, as we transition the heating of buildings from, for example, natural gas, but it's also from oil and propane, but natural gas has the has the large-scale infrastructure needed to transport. So as we transition from natural gas to electricity, we need, still need to make sure that natural gas is available when you need it. So before you actually transition to clean electricity, you want to make sure that the investments in the pipelines are still being made, but not made so much that that asset and the payback and the payment for those natural gas infrastructure lasts for the next 30, 40 years. So this is a very delicate balance that we have to strike. So in a nutshell, we still need to make the investment to make sure that we have reliable gas service while we're still on the gas service, but we don't make too much investment such that we have stranded investments that people have to pay for in the future for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And this is both a challenge at the local level, at the state level, and a challenge for the country 
as you hear the debates uh, at the national level on energy policies. Okay, so Judy, a final question for you here. We've talked about the role of consumers in battling climate change. What if there are any general messages that might be taken away from our conversation about their role as enablers of the energy transition? You know, I've already talked about there's a lot of work to be done to help consumers move away from fossil and their and thereby reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We've also talked about the challenges of making these transitions. In addition to the technical and the economic challenges and and the policies that need uh, to be set to sort of move us forward, I think there's one area where everybody can participate and can really contribute, which is on the education and the uh, what I call the climate campaign more broadly, because it's really important that we explain to folks the importance of the choices we make. You mentioned earlier that we only have a few more opportunities to change, you know, the cars we drive and the heating systems that we use. But it's important to help consumers understand why this is important. So there's a there's a big challenge in sort of figuring out how to get that message in a simple way to everyone. And that's, I think, where the government needs to come in and work perhaps with the private sector, but also with the advocacy groups to really create ecosystems where consumers hear the same message and it's clear and it's fact-based so that they can hear them over and over again. Again, I mentioned that people trust their neighbors. So how, what can we create from a community basis to share the information that we hear about the success stories of whether it's air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps or EVs or charging infrastructure. All of these things must come through one by one to reach out to our communities and people. So that actually also means that every opportunity we have, for example, investments in state facilities, municipal buildings, schools, whether it's ice rinks or, you know, any building that the public goes to, those are all opportunities to communicate to the public what's necessary to make these transitions. So I just, I guess I'll just end by saying that we all take a part in this energy transition and the more we can sort of collectively share success stories, the faster we can get there. Judy, thanks very much for talking. Thank you for having me. Today's guest has been Judy Chang, former Massachusetts Undersecretary of Energy and Climate Solutions. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more podcasts, research, and upcoming events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.